Chapter 3 of Napoleon, a short biography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Napoleon, a short biography by R. M. Johnston. Chapter 3 The Campaign of Italy, 1796 to 1797. Montenotte, Armistice of Cherasco, Crossing of the Po, Lodi, Le Petit Caporal, Entrance into Milan, Castiglione and Lonato, Bassano, Arcola, Rivoli, Fall of Mantua. From the time Bonaparte took command of the army of Italy, he appeared a changed man. He received even his oldest friends, such as Decret, with a reserve that was intended to mark the distance between them and his avowed aspiration to superiority. With the generals over whom he was placed, such an attitude was perhaps necessary. For veterans like Massena, Augereau, and Serrurier were inclined to be restive on finding themselves under the command of the little Corsican whom they styled derisively le général Vendemiaire. This feeling soon disappeared, for Bonaparte, unlike most great captains, showed himself the master of his army and an accomplished strategist from the first moment. The French army of Italy numbered some 37,000 men. It was stationed along the coast of the Mediterranean, in the neighborhood of Nice, and in the passes of the lower Alps. Across the mountains were two armies, the Sardinian of about 20,000 men watching the passes and protecting the roads running northeast towards Turin, the Austrian of about 35,000 men occupying Genoa on its left, and thence stretching across the Ligurian Alps to join hands with the Sardinians towards Dego and Montenotte. The Austro-Sardinians, under Beaulieu and Colli, were thus stretched out on a line of sixty miles through mountainous country. Not only this, but their lines of communications were divergent, that of the Austrians on Alessandria, that of the Sardinians on Turin. Bonaparte framed his plan of operations in accordance with these facts. He concentrated his divisions, first made show of marching along the coast on Genoa, then turned off across the mountains, and struck with his whole force at the point where the Austrian right joined the Sardinian left. The isolated divisions opposed to the French were beaten in a series of engagements at Montenotte, Dego, and Seva. At Mondovi, the Sardinians were defeated. Bonaparte pressed them hard on the road to Turin, and on the 28th of April, after a fortnight's campaign, the king of Sardinia was compelled to accept terms. An armistice was signed at Cherasco, highly favorable to the French Republic, and leaving Bonaparte free to operate against Beaulieu. The second part of the French general's operations turned on a similar strategic consideration as the first, that of compelling his enemy to cover his lines of communications and as this is an essential feature of the strategy of nearly all ages and countries it may be as well to make clear its precise significance before proceeding further 
the reader who has not studied military history is apt to think of an army as a piece on a chessboard that may be moved freely in every direction but this is not so an army is a society having special needs that have to be met daily and it can only be moved in such directions as will enable these needs to be satisfied food may be found for a small body in the country operated in but cities even of the largest size cannot supply at a moment's notice large quantities of gunpowder shot shell muskets boots and the thousand and one things an army requires how many small towns could work out even such a trifling problem as the reshoeing of the horses of a brigade of cavalry every army consequently has a line of communications running back to its base along which pours a continuous stream of supplies essential to its continued action in the field and this line of communications is generally agreed to represent an army's weakest point for if it is cut by the enemy the army becomes powerless as soon as it has expended the supplies actually on hand some of the most remarkable operations of war have turned on a clear comprehension of this fundamental principle we shall see it constantly brought into play in the campaigns of napoleon while bonaparte was driving the sardinians towards turin beaulieu had concentrated his army to cover the road to alessandria after the signature of the armistice of cherasco he retreated to the north bank of the po and prepared to oppose the crossing of the river and to defend lombardy and milan yet bonaparte achieved the conquest of that rich province and its capital without firing a gun and by methods highly characteristic of his genius a road runs northeast from alessandria to milan crossing the po at valenza in sardinian territory it was stipulated in the armistice of cherasco that every facility should be afforded the french army for crossing the river at that point information of this quickly reached beaulieu's headquarters and he took up a strong position on the northern bank whence he commanded the passage he was confirmed in this disposition by the fact that the french as they advanced collected all the boats that could be found upstream from valenza but bonaparte was only fainting while one of his divisions demonstrated in front of valenza and formed a screen along the po the great mass of the french army pushed along the southern bank to piacenza fifty miles east and there crossed over safe from attack may seven this great strategic march placed the french army within a few miles of the austrian line of communications which ran from milan through lodi back to mantua no sooner had beaulieu discovered that only a small part of the french were before him and that he was being outflanked than he hurriedly retreated and abandoning milan reached lodi a few hours before bonaparte from lodi he continued his retreat to mantua leaving a strong rear guard to keep the french back on the tenth of may was fought the battle of lodi of which the interest is more personal than military 
at this point the road to mantua crosses the adda by a long bridge at the further end of this bridge the austrians had established a considerable force of infantry and artillery to cover the retreat bonaparte determined to carry the position by storm and a column of grenadiers was formed and sent to the attack mowed down by the austrian guns and musketry the column recoiled and retreated then bonaparte followed by augereau lannes and other officers ran in among the men restored order reformed the column and pushing to the front led the grenadiers once more across the bridge the austrian fire was tremendous but bonaparte's onset was irresistible and he came out of the melee untouched later in life he declared it was on that day that the belief firmly took hold of him that he was destined to accomplish great deeds that same evening a deputation of sergeants of grenadiers waited on him in his tent and respectfully declared that he had been unanimously elected a corporal in their corps and for many years afterwards napoleon was fondly called le petit caporal by his soldiers it was partly in this respect that he was a great leader that he knew how to play on the feelings of his men on his inspections he would pass along the ranks unaccompanied and speak directly to the soldiers who were always at liberty to make known their wants on one such occasion during the empire a grizzled veteran reminded him that one night in the italian campaign he had shared a loaf of bread with his general instantly napoleon granted him the promotion or pension or medal he coveted and made his heart glad in his proclamations that are frequently such difficult reading to the anglo-saxon he played with perfect precision on the sentiments of the men who were to win his victories in his first proclamation to the army of italy he told the soldiers that they were without pay without clothes without glory and that these were all to be found in the rich plains of lombardy into which he was about to lead them he redeemed his word for on the fifteenth of may the army made its entry into milan the sight of the republican soldiers produced a curious effect on the milanese so long accustomed to the brilliant uniforms and irreproachable drill of the austrians the french infantry was dressed in rags and marched with a long slouching step many of the subordinate officers even captains were without boots the generals were far from the rigid good breeding and presence of the austrians but the drums rolled out the sa ira the bands played the marseillaise and from the draggled weary columns there came a breath of fierce swaggering spirit and patriotism that went far to explain their success and at their head was a plainly dressed boyish figure whose deep-set eyes and pale impassive face proclaimed aloud to those that gazed on him that the spirit and strength of the revolutionary army was directed by pure calculation and intellect all europe was soon to learn what the combination of the two could accomplish after having rested and refitted his army at the expense of milan where a provisional republican government was established bonaparte marched to the mincio where beaulieu had taken up his position 
a passage was forced on the thirtieth of may the austrians retreated into the tyrol and the french settled down to besiege the great fortress of mantua which beaulieu had strongly garrisoned and provisioned bonaparte now looked for favorable positions whence he could oppose the efforts of any relieving army sent by austria and took possession of the venetian fortresses of verona legnago and pesquiera these together with mantua form the most famous strategical position of modern history the quadrilateral commanding the north side of the valley of the po together with the passes of the adige between june seventeen ninety six and january seventeen ninety seven austria made four attempts to relieve mantua all of which were defeated in august the first effort was made by Wurmse with forty five thousand men bonaparte being at that time slightly inferior in numbers the austrians advanced from the tyrol in two bodies one under kozdanovich to the west of the lake of garda the other under Wurmser, down the valley of the adige bonaparte proceeding on an entirely opposite principle concentrated his whole army between the two austrian divisions even withdrawing the blockading corps from mantua and by rapid marching succeeded in defeating kostanovich and Wurmser one after the other there was a week's fighting and marching about the southern end of the lake of garda among the principal engagements being those at castiglione and lonato and finally the austrians were defeated and retired to the tyrol after suffering heavy losses a month later september seventeen ninety six Wurmser was ready to attempt the relief of mantua once more but from a different point leaving davidovich with fifteen thousand men to guard the passes of the adige he proposed marching from trent to bassano with twenty five thousand men and thence to circle around approaching mantua from legnago on the same day that Wurmser marched from trent bonaparte started north from verona with about thirty thousand men intent on assuming the offensive he drove davidovich north towards trent and on discovering that the principal austrian force was not in his front but had marched to the east he followed it without hesitation through the valley of the brenta joined and defeated it at bassano pursued it through vicenza and legnago and finally drove its remnants into mantua on the twelfth of september Wurmser had lost nearly half his numbers in killed wounded and prisoners this was one of the boldest and most effective marches ever performed by napoleon the troops had covered one hundred and fourteen miles in eight days a speed of fourteen miles a day may not appear much to the reader not versed in military matters who does not appreciate the difficulty of moving long columns of heavily laden men over narrow roads inevitably blocked at frequent intervals but the study of military history will show that for periods of more than three days continuous marching in an enemy's country a rate of fourteen miles a day is very nearly an extreme the american reader may note with particular interest that this is precisely the rate at which stonewall jackson's famous marches 
during his Shenandoah Valley campaign work out. But, of course, this does not negative the fact that a small body of troops might in one day cover thirty or forty miles. Wurmser's second failure did not break down Austrian resolve. A new army was collected and placed under the command of Alvinzi. Towards the end of October, the position was as follows. Alvinzi, with 30,000 men, was on the Piave, threatening an advance on Vicenza. Davidovich, with 20,000 more, was at Roveredo. The main French army was at Verona, and numbered about 30,000. Bonaparte now decided to reverse the operation he had carried out against Wurmser, to defeat Alvinzi on the Piave, then strike back through the valley of the Brenta at the flank and rear of Davidovich. But this time his plan failed. After some desultory fighting, Alvinzi crossed the Piave and forced Bonaparte to retreat to Verona. On the 12th of November, the two armies met a few miles east of Verona at Caldiero, and the French were severely defeated. Bonaparte's position was now highly critical, for Davidovich had descended the Adige and was only held in check by a division occupying the strong position of Rivoli. Only a few miles separated the two Austrian armies, and it appeared as though their junction could not be prevented. But now that the loss of an hour, or a single prompt decision, might mean all the difference between success and failure, the acute perception and superb audacity of Bonaparte made him more than a match for the slow and cautious generals opposed to him. On the night of the 14th, the French army crossed the Adige at Verona and turned eastward. At Tronco, the river was recrossed, and thence Bonaparte marched northwards to debouch on the flank and rear of Alvinci. The success of the whole operation turned on the occupation of the bridge and village of Arcola, which the Austrians defended with great courage during the whole of the 15th and 16th. Bonaparte tried to repeat at this point the charge over the bridge of Lodi, but saw nearly all his personal staff killed and wounded, and was himself swept by an Austrian counterstroke into a swamp where he nearly perished. The fighting at Arcola was of a desperate character, but finally, on the 17th, the French were successful in forcing a passage, and Alvinzi, finding the enemy in force on his line of communications, decided to retreat. The last Austrian attempt to relieve Mantua was made two months later, January 1797, and under the same commander. Alvinzi now concentrated his main force, about 30,000 men, at Roveredo, and marched down the valley towards Verona. At the same time, two smaller columns threatened the lower Adige from Vicenza and Padua. Bonaparte met Alvinzi at Rivoli, January 14, and by superior strategy, inflicted a crushing defeat on the Austrians, who, in two days, lost 13,000 men. Thence he marched rapidly back to the lower Adige, just in time to prevent the entry of Provera with 9,000 men into Mantua and to force him to capitulate. These utterly disastrous operations of the relieving army sealed the fate of the fortress 
and two weeks later Wurmser surrendered with some 20,000 men. February 2, 1797. End of chapter 3. Recording by Linda Johnson.